Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to FYI, Arc's weekly podcast on the intersection of technological innovation and investing. On this podcast, often we talk to Fortune 500 CEOs, and we love it. And sometimes we talk to people who are just fresh out of school, maybe a year or two years out of school. And today's podcast is one of with one of those people. Today, I am speaking with McKay Wrigley, founder and CEO of Learn From Anyone, a service that is being incubated today that will be likely out anytime now. And, you know, I came across McKay on Twitter. We both follow each other. And when OpenAI released its GPT-3 API, which basically allows a computer to write language of any kind, in anyone's voice, in any style, a bunch of people basically started building out minimum viable products using this one single API. And McKay was one of those people. He built a chatbot that spoke in the voice of historically famous people from Aristotle to Plato to Edison, and to currently people who are alive, perhaps, like Elon. And by leveraging the GPT-3 network, which is trained essentially on all the information on the internet, it knows everything that has happened to the world up to about October last year, and can speak with conviction and authenticity uh, in any of those voices. I think this is a fantastic story because McKay uh, has just basically finished coding school He's worked one year at a startup, and here he is launching a company. And I love this story because it's a story of optimism and what's possible in today's world. I think it's very easy to be inundated by negative news in today's world. There's so much bad going on that we forget what is possible and really uniquely possible in this age, where one person can build a company, build their personal brand off a single API that's built by a company that is it's itself a startup. I think it's a really, really great, amazing story. And we talk about a bunch of stuff. We talk about you know, how you go from having no idea how to code to being a proficient coder that works as a full stack developer in 18 months, which is what McKay went through. I really wanted to talk to him about what it's like to do a startup in the year 2020. You know, Silicon Valley and US has always done startups, but the difficulty or really the ease of doing a startup is so much less these days than it was a decade or even you know just a few years ago. And of course, we talk about this amazing product from OpenAI called GPT-3, which is still in closed beta, uh, basically uh, almost an omnipotent language system. What can it do? What can't it do? Is it getting us any closer to artificial general intelligence? This is a great episode, one of my favorites. I hope you enjoy. 
So we ran across each other on Twitter. Do you remember how you ran across me? I'll tell you my version uh, right after. So it was kind of a flurry. At the time, I was getting a lot of DMs about Learn From Anyone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were asking questions about it and just reaching out to get a general idea of what I was working on and things like that. And I want to say you introduced yourself and presented the idea of coming on the podcast, which was cool because I've actually listened to a couple episodes oh, great. before. So it was kind of fun for me to hear that. And that's kind of how I remember it. Okay. As you were interested in the idea and thought it would be perhaps an interesting thing to talk about. That's kind of how I remember it. I just remember OpenAI had released GPT-3 first as an announcement. You know, my God, we have our super duper model that's 10 times larger than the last one. And now we have an open API. So limited amount of people can try it out. And then, I don't know, within a week, you had come out with this crazy learn from anyone prototype where I think I was, I forgot if I was talking to Plato or Aristotle. The first one was actually the code generator. You were generating React code just this, by showing. I actually wasn't the one to do that. There was a few people like that. I retweeted it a few times. The person who did that, his name is Shreef Shamim. He's working on a, boy, I'm totally blanking the company's name, but he's working on natural language to code, okay. which, he's, which is obviously a very interesting use case. But you but are I'm, using it, right? It's not in public use, but I was very actively supporting it, I guess you could say. (laughs) So it may have been on my timeline to the point where it looked like I was working on it. Right. But you were, I think you were showing what it was capable of. Yes. I was very interested in a lot of things it was capable of. So I was kind of going through a lot of the interesting projects where at that time there weren't a ton, just given the limited access, but that certainly was the first one that kind of blew my brain a little bit. Yes. So let me zoom back a little bit just to help, I guess, listeners who are just diving in on on what's going on here. So essentially, OpenAI, the premier, I would say, AI research organization, now company, used to be a nonprofit in the US. They had worked on various quite interesting algorithms over the years, Dota and and, uh, robotics algorithms. They released something called GPT-3, which is basically a language generator that can after having learned from all the internet, can basically uh, imitate any kind of writing you like. So first it was writing some fantastical little stories about unicorns found in the kind of uh, Andes and stuff like that. And the latest version, GPT-3, version 3, is their first commercial product so that, that they're actually allowing people to use. And once they opened the floodgates and allowed a few people in, people were going crazy with creative ideas of how they can use this. And one of the implementations was literally one person types in English of what they want a website to be. I want a red button. I want a drop down and uh, make this about, you know, really big and make a button that looks like a watermelon. And GPT-3 was able to convert this very loose, just almost like spoken text into accurate, was it JSX? Yes, it was JSX. Into basically a code that modern web frameworks would use and render a perfectly valid syntax correct, no compile error, a web page. So nothing of the sort like has ever been done like that before. What's even crazier is, I want to say a couple of days later, he got it to not only display the landing page visually, but they started to get functionality built in. So they built a little, I want to say it was just a simple number counter, but it got like it generated JSX that actually worked, not just a visual web page. It was pretty incredible. Oh, I see. So not just markup, but functionality. Yes. 
And I remember the later versions, you could actually debug the code just by telling it stuff, like mm-hmm. in English. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, pretty wild. We have McKay on the podcast because he was one of the first few groups of people that got access to this API. And I would love to know what it takes to get access because I can't tell. It seems to range from Fortune 500 companies to someone right out of school. And we'll get into that. I would say McKay is one of the few people I've encountered on Twitter. And there seems to be just a wave, not a wave because that sounds like a lot, but a constant stream of people who are, I would say, building personal brands from scratch within two to three years of exiting college and hitting escape velocity in a way that I think the world fundamentally didn't support before. So I'm interested both uh, in this as a social phenomenon, as well as the technology of what OpenAI has built and what it's capable of from a selfish kind of researching AI perspective, as well as like what it's like to be a one-person company in today's world. Yeah, so you bring up two interesting points there. So maybe just to give a quick little background on myself, I only got into tech and startups in this whole interesting universe at the start of last year. So I was in the middle of college. I was studying economics. And of all things, I was tracking towards law school. Oh, and I was on that track. Yeah. So you know what it's like. Yeah. Uh, basically, that's what a lot of, what, I don't know what I'd call it, maybe quote unquote academic-y kids lean towards when they're not totally sure. You know, it's yeah. either you're going to go into the workforce or you're going to go to grad school. And for whatever reason, a lot of people default to law school. So I was on that default path. And after my sophomore year, I started to realize pretty quickly that that was not something I wanted to do long-term. It sparked no interest in me. Work felt like it would be a chore. I didn't feel like I was going to be excited about things I'd be working on. It just felt like something I was doing because I didn't know what else to do. So what ended up happening was I stayed in school for a little bit. And after my junior year, I decided I, I, I can't do this. I need to figure out another plan. And one of the things that I had always wanted to do was I had always wanted to learn to code. This had been ever since like the middle of high school or so. I always thought it would be a super cool thing to do. Obviously, there's a ton of things you can do once you can learn how to code. But for whatever reason, I had just kept on putting it off every year. And so every year I'd be like, all right, this is the year, like it would be the start of the school year. And I'd say, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to put off two hours every day and it's going to compound over the long term and I'm going to do this. And it never happened. Did you have any semblance that you would be good or could be good at this? So I had always been interested in tech. So here's like kind of the type of kid I was. I can remember being 11 and faking six so that I could watch Apple keynotes, like major releases. <laughs> so that was like, that gives you kind of an idea of where my head was at. And I, I can remember, oh gosh, when the iPad was announced and I totally faked sick that day so I could watch it. Combine that with very early on, I was, you know, like a very Lego kid kind of thing. So I'd always grown up sort of tinkering with things, building things. And like that's just the core of who I am is I, I just like to make things and, and share them with people. And just for whatever reason, you know, you grew up and I got away from that. And I found myself wanting to go back to that. And the, the reason code appealed so much to me is software is very much as like a building block where you can, you know, build applications as you write code. And it felt like this very creative, tinkery thing that I could do that obviously also had real world applications. Very, you know, lots of jobs, 
lots of opportunities in there. So it, it just kind of all made sense. So what ended up happening was I decided I was going to take a very late, call it a gap year. <laughs> I decided I was going to take that year and learn how to code. In thinking about how I was going to do that, there were a couple options. It was one, it was switched to a CS major and that added another three and a half years of school and that wasn't an option. Then there's the option I could teach myself, which is a very viable path nowadays. You know, a lot of people have a lot of success doing that. And there are, you know, there's just a ton of material online these days and great tutorials. That was an option. And then there was kind of the boot camp option, which that was the one I really wanted to do because I thought it would be nice to have some sort of structure and kind of combine the boot camp with my own self-learning to push myself more in the direction that I actually wanted to go, kind of my own niche within tech itself. One of the big problems with that at the time is so many boot camps charged thousands of dollars up front, which it just wasn't something I could do as a college student. It's just not in my budget. What ended up happening is I, I saw a targeted ad of all things for Lambda School. And for those listeners who aren't familiar, Lambda School is basically a technical coding school that is completely remote, that teaches you how to code and helps get you a job as a developer, and you don't pay anything until you have that job making at least $50,000. So it's kind of a very new approach to making technical education accessible, and kind of the, the way they align incentives works out really well for students. So anyways, I thought it was a scam at first. Oh, you haven't heard of Lambda School at this point. Yeah, yeah, nobody, it was, you know, this was before it had blown up as, as much as it has today. And I thought, you know, there's no way I'm not going to pay them until I get a job. I'm sure they're making me sign some weird legal agreement that's going to completely, you know, screw me over somehow. But, you know, it was interesting. So I, I talked to some students and I reached out to some of the staff. And sure enough, like it was very legit. They were really friendly, really professional, very helpful with providing information. So I ended up doing it. I started it February of last year of 2019 and did it for about five or six months until I got a job as a software engineer here. I'm based out of the Salt Lake City area here in Utah. How long is the, how long is the program for Lambda School? At the time when I was doing it, it was about nine months or no, it was seven and a half months. And then they bumped it up to nine to do, they implemented some job search stuff in the program itself that was kind of optional after and they just combined those. But the the way I I looked at it was graduation and they look at it a lot this way too, is graduations when you get a job that you're happy with. So you could exit in theory anytime midstream. So you could exit in theory anytime. I did about eight weeks early, I want to say. I got my job offer. I had done a few interviews, got a couple offers, which was great. They had you know, helped me out considerably. And I had I'd been able to leverage Twitter, which we can talk about in a second too, to help with that. How long do you think it, it would have taken you to learn that much on your own? I think it would have been at least, at least double. Because I'm a big believer in teaching yourself things. I love self-education. But there comes a point where what you don't want to happen when you, especially when you're learning technical things is you don't want to get lost, right? Because suddenly you can start learning the wrong things. You can start learning things that aren't, that, you know, real companies aren't using and you can sort of go all these pathways and get lost. And my main reason why I wanted to do a structured program was I knew that if I had people telling me, like giving me a path combined with 
my ability to self-teach, I would just get where I wanted to be at least two to three times faster. And I was willing to pay kind of the sticker price for that convenience. Okay. So you finished and got this job. Yeah. So I got the job. I was a startup here in Utah, a seed stage startup. I was actually the first employee outside of the three co-founders. I felt like I kind of won the lottery there. I knew I had wanted to work at a startup. That was the only thing on the table for me. It just just the kind of environment that interests me. I like high growth. I like taking on more than I can handle and just figuring things out and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I joined a startup here called Hivewire. They do like process and workflow automation software for non-technical people. And it was just a blast. I got this year crash course in startups. I got to see how you grow, how you talk to customers. How do you, I got to, you know, I did full stack. So I got to do front and back end. And the best thing that happened to me was I got to be in a room of people that were way more technically skilled than me. Just a room of really talented senior engineers that not only were talented engineers, but they were great teachers. And so I kind of got to really ramp up a lot of my learning by having very talented, very helpful, friendly people that were willing to kind of take me under their wing a little bit and, and help accelerate my rate of growth there, which was awesome. And maybe to go into some of the Twitter stuff, I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit. Let's just keep going with your story since you're on a roll here. So, well, I guess I'm wondering, they're doing a startup and they bring their first developer and you're just fresh out of coding school. How do they have the confidence that that would work? Yeah, so here's where the Twitter thing comes into it. So as I'm sure many of you know, tech people are all over Twitter. It's like tech Twitter is like a really big thing. So I kind of became aware of this when I started Lambda School and seeing how a couple people were sort of able to leverage that and leverage growth and sort of the whole idea of learning in public and building in public to help get them a job. And I decided this seemed like a pretty good strategy to use. So my kind of initial intent was I wanted to do the whole learning in public thing and sort of document my growth. And I knew that if I could show a rapid sort of pace of growth, that that's, you know, that's a good sign for employers, for somebody who has no experience is, you know, how fast can you learn and what can you build? So what ended up happening was like 200 followers. And these were mostly just all people from high school. I just kind of started putting stuff out there. I just started to tweet. I started to engage with people in different conversations. I started to share videos and pictures and progress updates of some of the things I was building. I was also putting them in my portfolio, you know, so people could go to GitHub and, and see the actual code I was writing and see my progress there. And so that went on for a year and I went from like 200 to like 4,000 followers that year. And Ultimately, Twitter ended up being this huge networking opportunity for me where I received a lot of inbound interest from people that had sort of followed some of the things I, I was doing. And, the, you know, people would say, hey, we're looking for a developer. We noticed you have done a couple of things. We kind of like the, uh, the rate of growth you've shown. We'd love to talk to you. And so anyways, that would turn into a conversation, which would turn into, you know, you know the formal interview process. And many of those actually turned into job offers. So Sure enough, I'd kind of executed on this plan of I'm going to try and help leverage this for exposure so that I can make it easier on myself down the road to get a job. And ultimately, what happened with the folks at Hivewire is they actually were one of the people who reached out to me on Twitter. The way that goes is, you know, they had seen a couple of things I had been doing and I had scheduled a couple interviews to do in Utah. There's, you know, a decent tech scene here nowadays. And I kind of hit them all in the matter of two to three days and this team stood out to me and 
I was able to kind of sell them on rate of growth over sort of Y-intercept kind of thing. <laughs> and, you know, it just turned out to be a great fit for both of us. So it was, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. And you worked at Hivewire for about a year and then you got ideas. And then the GPT-3 thing kind of came out of nowhere. So what ended up happening there was I actually happened to be on vacation for a week. And the Friday of that week, I got my API key. And I know you mentioned you were interested in, you know, how do people actually get access to this thing? We applied for an API key. We got nothing. Yeah, I, I applied on the waiting list literally within like the first hour of the announcement with nothing. <laughs> you kind of expect that. Nothing about me screamed like, we got to get this guy access because yeah. they have an idea or a team or whatever. You know, I was just kind of a random developer that like many, GPT-3 just looked super interesting. And, you know, you know devs, they, they want to get their hands on the fun toys. I had been waiting and waiting and hoping and you started to see people suddenly start to get access. And I, w- I just remember seeing all these cool projects and many of them were even just really small. And I thought, man, this would be so fun if I could just get my hands on one of these keys. And so sure enough, good old Twitter, you know, I tweeted about a couple of people building projects and sort of, I tweeted a couple of times, me like looking longingly at GPT-3 wanting a key. And one day, a high level member of their team just reached out to me and DM me and they said, Hey, we'd love to get you access if you're interested. And I went, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll take access. So it was honestly just a really lucky, fortunate thing, just kind of right place, right time on the internet as a lot of these things sometimes go. And I got my API key that day and I played around just to give some people an idea if they're not familiar OpenAI has this playground with their API on, on the site once you get access. And a lot of the tutorials and things you, you had seen floating around early on, a lot of those were within that playground. So I just kind of messed around in there, had a lot of fun. You know, you can spin up a quick chat bot with the AI and you, you can have this conversation and it, it just kind of blows you away a little bit because the text really is just totally indistinguishable from natural human language. And Given that I had been on the waitlist for a while, I had thought of a few ideas that I wanted to toy around with and build once I actually got access. So what ended up happening is I decided there was a really interesting opportunity where you could put in like real world personalities and things like that and actually learn from them. And I talked to a couple people who had similar ideas and we all thought this was a really interesting opportunity. So what ended up happening is that night, I spun up a really basic MVP with that concept. So basically the idea is this learn from anyone where literally you can learn from anyone, whether it's a real person or a, you know, Captain America, if you want, and you put the teacher, their name in the app, and then you type in something you want to learn from them or a question you want to ask them. And it basically spits back a chat bot, uh, which gives you responses that mimic that person's kind of voice and style. And it feels kind of like you're texting them or having a text conversation with them. And I spun that up a couple hours, really basic, nothing crazy. And I put it out there for people to use. And it just kind of took off a life of its own. People were having all sorts of fun with it, just using it in all sorts of ways. I didn't anticipate people would use it. And it was just a blast, right? It just kind of went viral and people were using it. And it was one of the few public demos that were live, which we can get to the story of what happened 
after that in a sec. But that's kind of how that came to be. Awesome. Who are some of the favorite teachers or big names in this? Learn from anyone. We see a lot of Elon. We see a whole <laughs> lot of Elon. Elon is still alive, yeah. so I don't think that's quite as interesting, you know? Who, who yeah. are the historians? A lot of the historical people we see, we see a lot of philosophy because that's one of the things that does well. Given how early it is, there are obvious limitations with how well it can teach you things, right? It's not going to be able to teach you math very well and things like that. And we sort of hope in the future that continues to improve. But right now it's a very, these like soft conversations. And so philosophy makes for a very good use case. And as you mentioned, we see like Aristotle and Plato and, and people like that a lot. You don't have to bring any data to the system, right? No, no data. So initially, like the way you interface with the API is you basically give it a, a prompt, which is just a body of text that want it to, oh, I don't know, it, it kind of adheres to how you structure the prompt. Early on, it was a really basic thing where anyone could do it, where it's just, hey, you're talking to X person and this is a couple of personality traits and it would spit something out. And now we've, we've kind of honed that further. It's kind of like, you know, our secret sauce, so to speak, to increase the consistency and the accuracy and better ensure it reflects the person's voice and things like that. But nope, you don't have to put in any data and you still get these incredible responses. Yeah, just to give some context for people who are not maybe close to AI, in the past, these things were possible. Chatbots were possible for decades already. I mean, they became big in the last couple of years. But typically to do something like this, if you wanted to create a chatbot that speaks like Plato or Rockefeller, you have to go and find a bunch of data of how that person speaks. You have to dig up, you know, all the works of Plato or all the writings of Rockefeller and then feed that into the system. The system may be pre-trained on a bunch of stuff, so it knows roughly how to speak English. But if you wanted to do anything specific, it's the customer's job to do the rest. OpenAI has basically sucked in all the data available on the internet, almost. All the data on the internet is large. It includes Plato's symposium, and it includes you know famous historical writings of just about anyone. So it can basically almost just find the right bits that's relevant and then use that to synthesize new content. Correct. So that's sort of one of the things that it's really exciting for people like me. So just, I, I have no AI ML background whatsoever. I'm just the full stack web dev. What's really exciting is suddenly you take somebody like me who has no experience in the field and you can spin up these just incredible AI natural language programs without having any sort of background needed in that space, which is super exciting because once you're able to kind of better democratize that technology, for the larger dev communities, that's that's when you see the big explosion of growth and creativity, and suddenly you start to see ideas like this take shape, which is really exciting. You know, lots of people when opening when GPT three came out, there was a kind of a collective freakout. We had uh, hot takes from anything from you know on the pessimistic side to this is just a bigger GPT two, and it has no idea. The AI has no idea what it's talking about. The first in the beginning of the paragraph, it will say the unicorn has you know one horn, and by the end, it will say it has two stuff like that. Two other takes that's like this is the beginning of open, uh, you know, artificial general intelligence. Based on your experience, what has it no idea how to do? So I think you know right off the bat, we have to remind people this is just a very very advanced natural language system. This is an AGI. So one of the things that I think is really exciting is you see kind of the growth from GPT-2 to GPT-3. So for quick background, GPT-2, correct me if I'm wrong, I want to say it came out in 2018. 
more or less two years before three did. And when you kind of project the progress from two to three, is suddenly you think, you know, what does GPT three, four, and five look like? And you know, what kind of growth and progress do we see there? And it seems like we are now beginning to be on the exponential, the very the steep part of the exponential curve there, where it feels like this decade we'll see a lot of progress there. And I certainly don't want to make any prophetic statements like we'll see AGI by 2030 and things like that. But I think you can expect to see these models improve and quite drastically. So as, as I kind of mentioned, you know, some of the limitations right now is sort of the more technical, the harder skills. So in our use cases, the long-term vision is, you know, we want basically to put an expert in every subject in everybody's pocket, in every home, in every school, and on every device is we want you to be able to put in something you want to learn and basically have an AI teacher to teach you that. That's the long-term goal of what we'd like to do. And so from a, a teaching perspective is, as, as I kind of mentioned with philosophy, that works pretty well, right? Because as you mentioned, all the major philosophical works are all trained in this model and you put the person in it. It does a good job of being able to, you know, you can have a conversation with Aristotle. It feels like you're learning philosophy, right? But if we put in Albert Einstein and wanted to teach you about physics, is it starts to break down really quickly, which is one of the things that I personally hope improves quite a bit with models like four and five and six in projecting forward is we want to see sort of hard technical subjects become more accurate and things like that. Somebody I saw oh, a couple of days ago on Twitter, they took a, just two or three dozen subjects and they basically said, how much better does GPT-3 give responses, accurate responses to those subjects and those answers to those questions that you would expect compared to basically random chance of a natural language model? And sure enough, you see it you look, it's in like the 80% better, where I'm not exactly sure what the scale was, but it was two or three times better with a subject like psychology or geography or history or something than it is with something like calculus, right? And I think that's some of the limitations right now is at the end of the day is you have 2000 tokens is the prompt limit right now, which a token is more or less four characters each, which equates to something like 1500 words. So basically on top of GPT-3's entire training data, you can give it sort of a prompt up to 1500 words to help it do something that you want to do to take the JSX example, right? You can give it a couple different examples of, you know, build a landing page that is red, right? And then you can give it some example JSX. You do that a couple of times, fill up the prompt. And that's kind of what you see some of these developers doing or doing things like that is they're basically training the prompt. So some of the limitations right now is basically, you know, prompt size, as we continue to see, I mean, 175 billion parameters that GPT-3 is trained on is a lot, but the thing is that can further improve and you start to see, they're actually doing uh, an engine upgrade in about a week or so that gets current events up to August, which is exciting because that would make the dev community seem to think they're going to continue to support additional parameters and additional training, which is great. So that's a great point. That's a great point because this thing is not a humans have this feature called constant learn, right? Yes. Whatever I say now, you are going to remember, and you can use that back against me instantly. If there was a rain today, it will, the, your motto, your brain will know, it will add that, and you can use that dynamically. But these open these neural nets, this GPT three, 
is just trained on this kind of snapshot of the internet and then it gets used and it knows nothing about what happens to the world after that point. You know, there could be a war and it would have no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we were having a couple users try and ask about COVID-19 and they were like, we were not getting anything in. Basically, the reason being was because the data had cut off from October, which is, you know, obviously before all the COVID stuff. So when you think about like some of the limitations is, sure, it may not be able to do everything perfectly right now, but as it's able to add data, as it continues to train, as they continue to refine the model, tweak the parameters of what you're able to kind of, as a developer, control how it responds to you. Because there, not only is there the prompt, but there's also several different parameters. One being something that's effectively creativity of how creative do you want it to be? And, and other things like this is I think you'll start to see it improve at some of these tasks that it can't do particularly well. So right now it's a lot of things like content generation. Some of the fun things that I've seen so far is obviously the JSX one, you see like natural language to regex expressions, which is really interesting. I was toying around with something that used Twitter's advanced search feature where you could basically write natural language and it would query it using Twitter's query language. And so you could go on a website and type like, I want to see all the tweets from 2018 had at least 500 retweets from this account. And right now with Twitter, you have to go in the advanced search and enter the parameters or you have to know how to query it yourself. And you start to see people right now, we're taking a lot of things like that, which are sort of basic repetitive structured tasks. And they're just trying to use natural language to convert it into instructions to do that. Which that's, that's some of the interesting things I've seen so far. We could perhaps talk later about some of the things that OpenAI is allowing people to do and not allowing them to do right now, given it's in beta. And they do kind of take this more conservative, cautious safety approach, which I think is a really good thing. Obviously, with AI, you want to play it safe, but that's some of the things we've seen so far. You know, you talked about maybe this is on an exponential curve about the model size is getting larger and more capable. Um, I think, you know, the critics of the neural net approach has always been, yeah, you can throw more data at it, you can throw more compute, but you're just kind of increasing quantity and accuracy in the current kind of problem sets, but it's not qualitatively improving in intelligence, broadly speaking right? Kind of reasoning and all the things that's kind of slightly outside of neural net capability. I mean, given that they've already collected practically the largest text data set out there, I'm sure they can do better. But really, how far can they push this? Can they build a 10x larger data set? Can they just throw 10x more compute at the current data set and yield results? If you just look at it analytically, is it, is it clear that there's plenty of just continuous headroom down this path that they're going down? Sure. So I don't want to step too much above my pay grade because as I said, I don't have a, an AI or machine learning background. And so I don't want all of the people that know what they're talking about there in, in great detail to, to come after me. But I think you bring up a good point, which at the end of the day, there is only so much data out there that we can train it on. So once you hit that limit, you know, where does the improvement come from? So one of the things I think about from a developer perspective is right now it's it's very much kind of like the wild west where somebody will have a problem and they will ask the community okay and you keep in mind the community is not very large right now and they'll ask people and they'll say hey I have this problem I want to try and solve has anyone seen any success with certain prompt configurations different parameters that you can tweak and things like that and right now there's just not a lot of 
data on that. There aren't a ton of resources on if I'm trying to build X, you know, what list of solutions or how can I attack this problem? There's not a lot of out there. So one of the things that excites me is in the future as more people get access to it is that means more people solving more problems, solving different types of problems, better documentation around what it can do. You know, you hope they continue to expand the prompt limit and things like that, which I think will have a very profound effect on what kinds of things you can do because the prompt has a very large impact on the actual response you get from the API. And not only does the prompt have a limit, but the response does this too. So I think as you see those two things increase the length of the character limit that you're allowed to get back from those, I think you start to see a lot of rapid improvement and expansion of some of the things you can do there. And like I said, with the dev community thing is you hope eventually there's some sort of stack overflow for open AI API prompts. So you can enter, you know, what kind of thing you're looking for and you can get a bunch of resources from the community on, hey, we've seen these things work, go try this which I think, you know, you combine expanding the prompt, expanding the length of the response you can get with better dev resources. And I think that's a way you can see things improve quite a bit without even having to really touch expanding on the parameters and the training data, which that's also a pretty exciting thing. I see. What's it like to work with OpenAI as a developer? What is your impression of this company? Because it seems to be quite secretive. It's gone through this kind of uh, replatforming from a nonprofit to a limited profit company. What is your feel for this company? So one of my very first impressions is, first of all, I have nothing but really good things to say about their team. So a fun story is when I deployed the initial MVP for Learn From Anyone Live is the way I kind of gotten boarded was I didn't realize you had to do a production review. And what ended up happening is I had to take it down and we had to do a relaunch that's a, a closed beta. And I was super scared because I thought, you know, oh no, like they're going to, they're going to take away my API key after day one. But sure enough, they were super cool about it and friendly. They took a lot of responsibility on themselves, basically saying like, hey, this actually was our screw up. Like we should be able to understand the onboarding process better for people. And like, we apologize for putting you in the spot and, and things like that. So they're very helpful, very friendly team, obviously. What, what so for a while, it was kind of, whatever they thought was good. And now they have, as of September 2nd, they released official guidelines. And basically it's just this big form of wanting to, you know, get all of this data. How are you using it? Who are users? How many people do you want to use it? You know, what's the use case? Kind of things like that. Okay, so it's not like they're doing code review or anything. No, they're not doing code review. It's a pretty open-ended thing. Very much an evolving process. That's one of the things I think people should realize is the API is very much in beta. And that's not just a thing that says this isn't limited release. Like it's very much a beta where they're, you know, they're iterating on dev feedback. They're figuring out problems along the way. And sort of one of my big major impressions on them is they're very focused on safety and they want the user experience to be good. So one thing that unfortunately happened with our initial release was Given that GPT-3 is straight on the entire internet, all the content on the internet is not always nice. You can get some nasty content on there. And so it was very rare, but two or three users out of tens of thousands got sort of these nasty responses that were pretty toxic. You know, you don't want users to get that. We've since implemented their filtering engine, which helps to avoid some of that stuff. And it works pretty well. It almost works too well right now, which 
is very much reflective on how they approach safety is they'd rather overdo it than underdo it right now. But yeah, so so like some of the questions they want answered there is, you know, how do people use it? Do you see people being able to exploit this to kind of break out of it? One of the things, you know, they don't want to happen is that for like for us, I, it's basically an open-ended chatbot right now. And what they don't want is all of a sudden you can override it and get into the prompt and suddenly you're writing text that's like generating harmful code or something. It's like all these things they think about. One of the things they mentioned in our conversation was they don't want people to generate politically misleading things or like factually incorrect things and releasing that to the world. And suddenly it's like influencing campaigns and, and elections and things like that, which sounds silly, but like it's a very legitimate concern where they don't want people generating harmful fake content that's going to do these types of things. And one of the the other things we've talked about with them is we consider ourselves to be an, an education platform in the long haul. And one of the things that you can see is I, I was working with somebody and a, a user has a sleep company. They were trying to mess around and see if you could do like an AI sleep coach, which isn't a specific personality, but you know, sure enough, you could put like high school algebra teacher or sleep coach and you can still get valid responses. And one of the things the sleep coach was doing is it was generating fake studies to prove some of the points it was saying. And even though some of the points were true, it makes these studies that look completely legit. And so one of the things you have to avoid is you don't want people to suddenly be able to generate like fake research that proves something that's completely untrue and, and things like that. So they're Part of kind of this beta and them being so conservative on who can get access to it and controlling what people can push to production is very much this kind of process of figuring out what kind of safety problems there even are and how to address those, which is fascinating. Yeah, they started off as a research organization and with a heavy leaning on policy and safety, right? Jack Clark and others there, they came in with this perspective of this could be the most potent weapon we ever invent and we want to get ahead of safety rather than kind of end up in maybe like a Facebook situation, which is you assume that humans are really great, you enable them and then, oh crap, we have a bunch of problems on our platform. Yeah, which it's kind of a double-edged sword because as a developer, obviously you get really excited about this and you want to release all these things. And it's a little bit of a bummer when we have to do a very closed beta and gradually ramp up users. But on the other hand, you're very grateful that sort of the companies or the, the world's leading artificial intelligence company and, and research organization with all these just incredibly bright minds working on these problems are in fact very safety focused people. I think when you, you project to what the future of AI looks like is you want people with that mindset controlling things as opposed to the opposite. So I'm very impressed with how they are tackling these problems while also being very transparent for developers, because at the end of the day, we do want a certain amount of information on what we can expect going forward and things like that. And I, I think they do a very good job maintaining that balance. Now you quit a perfectly good job to your start your own company, learn from anyone, and you're really building your whole company on top of OpenAI's API. You're betting your startup on another startup's API. It's not like there are five open AIs out there. If one doesn't work out, you just switch to the Microsoft solution or the you know, DeepMind solution or whatnot. This is all there is. And 
you don't even know the, I presume they haven't even announced pricing or anything like that yet. What gives you the confidence that you can bet the farm on this beta API from a startup company? Yeah, these are really fun questions. What ended up happening was I, I was so compelled by GPT-3 that it was one of those things where it felt like this was, I hear people talk about how they felt when the internet sort of started. And that's sort of how I felt with GPT-3 is I felt like this was just too big of a thing to not work on it. So, you know, I ended up going all in on it. And that's a very interesting position to be in. From a business perspective, this is a big thing I think about, right? Because you don't want to be reliant on another company's technology and the access there, especially given how early it is with GPT-3. And you project some of these things we'd like to do in the future. There's no guarantee that that's necessarily possible, right? That's very much a educated guess of where we think the technology is going in our conversations with people where they think it's going and, and, and things like that. So from a business perspective, one of the things I, I'm thinking about a lot lately is how do we build a product that can leverage this technology while also having our own fundamental experience and product that doesn't rely on it. And that's, for me, from a business perspective, is probably the top problem on my mind right now is, so this isn't a perfect analogy, but you can kind of think of it as Tesla going from the Roadster to the Model 3. You know, you hear Elon talk about his vision for Tesla in the early days, and it was very much a, you know, we want to accelerate advent of electric cars. We think this is a good thing for the world, and we think Tesla can play a big part of that. And ultimately, right, they wanted to get the impressive, affordable electric car to the masses, right? But the way they had to do that is they had to start with the Roadster, which was a very high-end vehicle that didn't go out to too many people. It's a very exclusive product. And you, ultimately, you've seen them kind of go from the Roadster to the Model 3 and start to see progress there. Again, it's not a perfect analogy, but that's sort of the mindset that I have is, look, we want to get to this point where we can build an education platform where people can have AI teachers and tutors and coaches in any subject and you can learn from them and you can kind of project out some other future developments in technology like AR and VR and utilizing that to make the experience even more interactive and, and special there. As you say, it's not a perfect analogy. The key thing, I guess, is that you have no redundancy over your supply chain, so to speak. Yes. Right? There's only this one company, this API. So what are you thinking about? How do you think about that problem? So one of the things we're playing around with right now is the idea that there's a human element. Because what I don't want to happen from a business perspective is we die before we can even start working on the thing that we ultimately really want to do. So it's a question of how, right, long-term, it's like, how do we get from A to Z? But right now it's, you know, how do we get to A to, and to B and to C? And before we even start thinking about that. So I am of the opinion that, you know, when you think about the idea of learning from anyone, that's also very much a human thing as not just a, you know, we want to spin up an AI chemistry teacher so that you can learn from them is we want to empower people to be able to take lessons and courses and, and things like that from real people. So one of the things we're playing around with is sort of a proof of concept around that, which is in the works. Because again, the long-term vision really is to do this whole AI teacher thing and empower people to do that. But there's going to be a number of years before that's a possibility. And 
just from a business perspective, you don't want to die before you can get there. And you have to be smart about providing your existing customers value based on the things they want, uh, which there's been a huge demand with this, which is one of the things that, you know, it's mildly infuriating. Although, you know, we, we support the, the beta is we want to give this access to everybody on our email list and things like that, but we can't yet. So it's kind of, we're working on some things that we think people are going to like that are going to be helpful, that are going to be useful, that they're going to want to use on a daily, weekly basis that don't necessarily rely on GPT-3 at the moment. And so that's a little bit in the works right now. We're obviously just a few weeks old, but that's it's, you know that's how I'm thinking a little bit about that problem of being completely reliant on GPT-3 and the API. And also as you know, we project out to the future of wanting to avoid this problem where we can't even start what we really want to do for three, four, five, six plus years and getting to a, a good spot in the meantime. That's still a very exciting product that we want to work on as well. So am I correct understanding you're considering taking human experts into the loop and being an interface to them? Yes. And we're kind of a little bit in like stealth building phase. So I don't have a ton of details to share there, but that's something that people should be able to expect in the coming weeks or months is more information from us on what that looks like and, and how they can get access and what kind of the value prop is there. We, we think people will like it. And that's, that's an evolving thought process too, but we're very excited about some of the things that we're working on. And I say we, it's, it's just me right now, but we are, we have a couple people that are, are helping us out a little bit, which is very helpful. See, I was actually, that was going to be my next question. It's, it's you and which army. <laughs> yeah, I, I say we a lot. I, I'm generally just the type of person that would prefer a we over like me attitude, which is very corny. I think it's an important thing and it's an important habit to have early on, but it is mostly 99% just me working on this right now. Well, talk to us a bit about what it's like to build a company, internet company 2020. I mean, I wish... I could ask you like, what's it like versus, you know, 2001, but I know, you know, that's not something you can really answer, but maybe you have impressions of that. Just walk us through, what does it take? How hard or easy is it? What is your tool stack and who do you have to pay? What are the companies that enable this whole process? Yeah. So A, I think it's just a really interesting time in general, starting a company right in the middle of COVID. So what's interesting, and I actually think this is a significant pro is you're seeing things move a lot more remote. And I think a remote world is very helpful for what I'm trying to do. It makes it easier to talk to people. People seem to be more interested in working on things on the side. A lot of people have been super generous with their feedback and their advice. I feel very fortunate to have a lot of people around me uh, that have good domain expertise in a variety of things that I'm obviously a, a first-time founder. I'm pretty, you know, relatively very inexperienced. I'm, I'm quite young. This whole thing is just a completely new thing for me, which on one side, you know, there's a lot of problems and there's a lot of work to be done. On the other side, there's a whole bunch of stuff you get to learn, which is super fun. So you think, so, you know, some of the problems that we've come up, run into so far, which, you know, every startup runs into is things like suddenly I don't go from just writing code in my day job all day and, and talking to people is suddenly I have to do legal paperwork and I have to incorporate a company and you have to do all these, this paperwork and you have, you know, you've got to set up your company's bank account and all of these things that are totally new. And 
I think when you think about what's it like to start a company in 2020, particular somebody who's hasn't done it before is really convenient compared to some of these things I hear about people having to do even just five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, take Stripe Atlas, for example, is we pay them a very relatively small fee. It walks us completely through incorporating our company, which, you know, we talked, I've talked to a couple of people who have had to do that in the past. And like, you have no idea how nice it is to start a company right now and how much easier it was. We used to have to pay ten, fifteen thousand dollars in legal fees to get all this stuff set up. I didn't realize that. So Stripe, which is known to be just a payment processor online, kind of like Twilio for payment processing, you're saying they're a company creation as a service now? They have basically a product called Atlas that's essentially startup incorporation as a service where you pay them five hundred bucks and it walks you through the whole thing. They have various partnerships with companies like Carta, who does cap table management and things like that different startup banking solutions like Mercury, they basically get you completely set up. And obviously you have to do some of the work yourself, but they simplify it. You know, you don't need a lawyer. You don't need to hire legal counsel to do some of these things. Whereas you used to be able to have to do that, which, you know, for me is that just wipes so much headache away and I can focus on what I'm good at, which is, you know, I, I can write code. I'm good at talking to users and building things as opposed to having to worry about all this stuff in the background, which is really great. And then, you know, obviously there's things like fundraising and whatnot. So we've raised a small amount of initial investment to help give us some runway foreseeable future, which is, is great. And you talk about, you know, what does the fundraising landscape look like right now? I think a lot of people thought COVID and again, I'm, I'm not a VC, so please VCs out there, don't kill me for anything I say that's wrong. I think a lot of people, the sentiment was COVID would really slow down a lot of fundraising, whereas we've seen that actually, we've seen that ramp up actually quite a bit. I think the opposite that a lot of people thought would happen actually ended up happening. We've actually got a lot of inbound interest, which is great. It's never been easier to connect with these people to go back to Twitter again. You know, VCs are all over Twitter and it's very easy to have a conversation with people. And we've found it to be, I think about what would it be like in you know 2010 or in 2000 or something to try and get a hold of some of these people. And it just seems like an insurmountable mountain where you've got to know somebody that knows somebody. Whereas in 2020, you can DM somebody and you know they're not going to reply every time, but you throw enough darts and you're going to hit a couple of bullseyes every once in a while. So it's sort of this very fun environment where a lot of things that weren't accessible are accessible. And a lot of these tougher problems are now much easier thanks to a lot of the innovation we've seen. What about your tooling and infrastructure? What are you built on? So right now, OpenAI's docs are very heavily skewed towards Python. They have a lot of really great code snippets there. And so in our backend is basically a Python Flask backend. We also have a Node server that we've spun up for a couple of other things. Well, that's kind of what our backend looks like. In front end, we're just all React, big fan of React. I spent a little bit of time very early on working with Angular. And I hate Angular more than almost anything in this world. And as a company, we finally we switched to React. And so, yeah, we use React, uh, AWS, and we use AWS for a lot of services. One of the things that we have been playing around with is actually text-to-voice. And AWS has this really interesting service called Poly, which is synthesizes text to natural language. And that's been a lot of fun to work with. We use Postgres for our database and things like that. So that's sort of some of our, our tech stack and what we're working with on a day-to-day basis, which is 
I'm a big fan of all of those tools. Python is one of the things I haven't worked with a ton, which even though it's very popular, that's been a fun thing as I've gotten to dig into that quite a bit more, which the developer in me, you know, always loves learning a new technology. So that's been kind of fun. That's awesome. If you zoom out a little bit and look at all the other companies out there today, having had your experience of learning and building and launching, which of the companies out there, maybe public or private, do you feel like just has such an incredible future ahead of them and you would be glad to be part of their team or an investor? This is a fun story. So I don't have the experience or the qualifications to work there, but I would love to work at OpenAI. Like if I could choose any company to work for, I just, and, and obviously this is a big reason why I'm working on what I'm working on is because I, I'm so interested in the future of what they're doing. And about a year ago, I tweeted out something basically where if I could talk with any team in the entire world and just pick their brains for a day and visit their offices, it would be OpenAI. And so I think second, I put SpaceX just... I tend to be very oriented towards long-term visions. I find a lot of satisfaction personally from working on a problem that I think is going to have a positive impact on the world. It's kind of corny as that can sound sometimes. It's very cliche in tech to be like, we want to change the world. And you see a lot of memes around that. But I do think there's something to be said for waking up every day and working on something that you really do think has the potential to have a significant impact. I believe in spending your time building and working towards a future that you actually find is exciting that you think would be less likely to happen if you wouldn't work on it. Anyways, going back to the open AI thing, it's funny because, you know, a year ago I was trying to talk to so many people on our team and now I get to talk to them almost on a daily basis and hear about what they're working on and things like that, which is really fun. Just some other companies that I think are really interesting. One industry that I find really interesting that's kind of starting to explode a little bit is the audio industry. I don't know what you would call it, but things like Clubhouse and you see how people are starting to make audio more social and things like that. I think that's really interesting right now. Boy, what else is out there? So this is a bigger company, but even Stripe, I think developers love Stripe. Like That's no secret is everybody says, what's a favorite startup? And they say Stripe. And what is a startup? They're this massive tens of billion dollar company. But I think their mission of trying to expand the GDP of the internet is, I think that's really fascinating. I'm trying to think some of these other companies. I think Neuralink is another one that's really interesting right now. If you look at what does the future of... People haven't seen it. Elon and the team, they did a demo a couple... Well, it was like a week or two ago demonstrating some really early stuff. And you think what the potential is of that is, that's pretty incredible to me. I think OpenAI or Neuralink would probably be my top two of companies that I think would be fascinating. And again, I, I don't necessarily think I have the relevant experience there, but if I could just offer what I could to them, if I wasn't working on what I was doing, and if I had to join a company too, because I think the other answer to this question is if I wasn't doing this, I'd be doing a different startup. Some of the companies that really intrigue me, that's kind of some of them, they go through those really quick. You know, you paint a very optimistic picture. And if we read Twitter or read the news, you get the impression that maybe society at large is extremely pessimistic or downtrodden and angry for many reasons. From your perspective, what is the case for optimism? And why is it exciting to be alive today? There's a lot of psychology and the research there shows that people react more strongly to the negative than to the positive. So I think it's just human nature to have the more pessimistic op- kind of mindset. 
I feel like people in the 80s were just more optimistic. Yeah, you know, that uh, that whole period may be the exception of the rule. I think, you know, you just think even from like an evolutionary perspective, fear and is generally been a good thing where it acts as, you know, a mechanism to, to protect people and for survival and things like that. But the, the case for optimism to me is I just think optimism is so much more interesting Right. So let's take this as a relevant example. As you saw yesterday with all the wildfires happening on the West Coast, is San Francisco is just completely orange. It looked like this Blade Runner, like people were posting all those Blade Runner pictures and it just looked like this complete apocalyptic hellscape. You know, people see that and it's very easy to go be pessimistic and to say, wow, like this is what the future looks like and this is terrible and yada yada. But the optimistic person in me, is that is like okay? There's clear problems here. These need to be addressed, and the different technologies that we could work on are very exciting. These are fun problems to work on, and they get us to very interesting places. So, going back to my whole attitude of sort of building the future that you think is exciting, I think it's much more interesting to do that. And I think the people that you get to interact with, who share similar mindsets to that, you know, you put all those people in a room and you give them a problem and interesting things start to happen really quickly. As opposed to the pessimists, we have a great uh, building for those people called Congress and Capitol Hill, and they can go do their thing over there, (laughs) which not to make this political at all, but you you just look at the attitude of people who are optimistic versus pessimistic and want to complain and talk about problems whether they want to actually work towards solutions. And I don't think it's very interesting. Look, I like Black Mirror as much as the next person, and it's fun to you know, imagine these dystopian technologies. But I think ultimately, we don't want that. And we want to work towards a future that we're excited about. And just, I think when you get around other optimistic people, I think really good things happen. And I think we need to do a better job getting people onto that mindset. We need to make the 80s the new reality. We need to make the 80s. Yeah, the 2020s. Let's make it the new 80s. Awesome. Awesome. Well, McKay, I'm so glad that A, you embrace this optimistic vision and also you're building it in 2020, making the world a better place. Best of luck with your startup and hope to hear great things from it and would love to have you back on the show. Thank you very much. It's been really fun to be on the show. Appreciate it. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.